This is The Guardian. Today, the style that made Joe Rogan so influential turned into a liability during the COVID pandemic. What's next for the world's most famous podcaster? Before we start, a heads up. This episode contains references to drug use and language that some might find offensive. The first thing that comes to mind is the mushroom coffee. That's what I began my day with. Sounds delicious. It is not delicious. (laughs) Devin Gordon is a journalist living in Boston, Massachusetts. And for a story for The Atlantic, he set out on an experiment to live by the health regimen promoted by one of the best-known broadcasters in the world, Joe Rogan. Once you wash down that mushroom coffee, you brush your teeth with this infernal, disgusting toothpaste that I guess makes your teeth cleaner. It looked like stool. Oh, dear. Then you have to go to the gym and crush it for at least 30 minutes to an hour. But there's all kinds of supplements, nootropics to help your memory your eyesight, your focus. And the idea is total human optimization. For me, the purpose of the exercise was to try to understand why so many men like me, you know, just pretty garden variety American guy, are so obsessed with this guy. Brown toothpaste is gross, but Rogan's show is wildly popular downloaded 190 million times a month, according to the most recent figures. Rogan's weathered controversies in the past, but streaming over the internet in a studio in his home, he seemed untouchable. And a $100 million deal with Spotify in 2020 put it beyond doubt. Like it or not, Joe Rogan is a major cultural force. But his enthusiasm for the unconventional has more recently, during the pandemic, led him down some pretty dark rabbit holes. In defiance of mainstream science, he's pushed ideas that young people don't need to be vaccinated. If you're a healthy person and you're exercising all the time and you're young and you're eating well, like, I don't think you need to worry about this. And he's given a platform to crazy ideas, including that the pandemic is all in our heads. A mass psychosis of the kind that one of his guests claimed gripped Nazi Germany. And this is what has happened. We had all those conditions. If you remember back before, 2019, everybody was complaining, the world doesn't make sense, we're not connected socially anymore, except through social media. And then this thing happened and everybody focused on it. It was all too much for at least one listener, the legendary musician Neil Young, who gave Spotify an ultimatum. It's Rogan or me. Spotify has spoken and it has chosen Joe Rogan over Neil Young. The rock legend gave the streaming service an ultimatum demanding that his music be removed from the platform if Rogan's podcast remains on it because he says Rogan's podcast is, quote, spreading fake information about vaccines. Well, it didn't take Spotify very long to decide here. Joe Rogan admitted he might have made some mistakes. I wanted to make a video to address some of the controversy that's been going on over the past few days. He says he'll do more to push back on fringe opinions. But will he follow through? From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, 
how Joe Rogan conquered podcasting and whether he can change the formula that's made him such a success. Start broadcast. Joe Rogan Live. That's like, it? Yeah, right there. Try it. You can try it out. Yeah. Devin, we're trying to understand Joe Rogan, the man and the phenomenon. And to do so, we went back about 12 years in time and listened to the very first episode of Joe Rogan's podcast. We are broadcasting live. This is uh, my office. Where he barely knows how to work his equipment. I don't think we're quite high enough for this. <laughs> He's a very far cry from where his podcast has landed now. Before he was a podcaster, what was Joe Rogan known for? Joe Rogan was a stand-up comedian. What have Mr. Joe Rogan? Give him a hand. Kind of like a B or C list stand-up comedian. What's up? What's going on, huh? He got his break on a really great sort of classic NBC sitcom here called News Radio. I remember it. Great show. It was a great show, amazing cast. He was one of the supporting characters, and he was a conspiracy theorist on the show, which is kind of funny. Okay, uh, who is it that thinks we never really landed on the moon? If you look at those tapes... Who is it, Joe? Uh, His sort of big break came when he was the host of Fear Factor. It's a reality TV game show competition where people competed to do extremely terrifying, insane things. And if you could succeed in doing it, you won a bunch of money. It was kind of a perfect match. You'll each have to eat four ounces of maggot-covered cheese. Oh, no, 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 you're fine, bro. Don't chuck. (laughs) Mike's my new hero. And his even bigger break came when he became the go-to color man and announcer for UFC. That really exploded his audience. Bam! The legs go! Boom! The lights go out in Georgia! So that's a pretty varied career. How does he come to be involved in podcasting, which at the time is still a tiny industry, and not one taken very seriously by the big media companies? As someone who has always been a free speech absolutist, and that is, as much as anything else, one of Joe Rogan's cardinal beliefs, the idea of starting a podcast probably appealed enormously to him. Here was a chance to reach his audience directly without interference. And because he was one of the early adopters, that's a big factor in why he's so huge. I mean, as good as he is, as many platforms as he had, let's not underestimate the value of being an early adopter. He had a head start on everyone. And was he an immediate success? Like, when did it become clear that his show was no longer a comedian side gig, a kind of garage operation? By the time podcasts started to become a commercial thing that people knew, and we're only talking the last five, six, seven years, obviously, he was already the leading interviewer in the game. You know, him and Tim Ferriss for years were sort of, you know, jockeying back and forth to be the number one podcast in terms of downloads. As long as there had been popular podcasts, Joe Rogan's has been one of them. The Joe Rogan Experience. Devin, I've listened to Joe Rogan here and there, but for those who haven't, what's his show like? Joe Rogan Podcast, check it out! The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day! The average Joe Rogan Podcast, first of all, it runs about three hours. I mean, these are marathon conversations, and that's even excluding the sort of 10 minutes of ad reads that he does at the beginning of the program, which are all hand-selected usually health supplement products 
or masterclass gift certificates or something like that. And then you sort of dive into a three-hour conversation with, I think you can sort of divide his guest list into about three categories. There's fighters. So like when you go to jiu-jitsu school, the first thing you learn how to do is bow to Matt and kiss the instructor's ass. Comics. <laughs> you think you need water in the matrix? I'm not going to be the guy without it in there. <laughs> and then a very broad category I would describe loosely as thinkers. And that can be Oxford scholars. But did you know that the placebo effect works even if the patient is told it's a placebo? Engineers. I think there's been around 500 people that have been to space. Ever. Yeah. That's, That's nuts. Celebrities. I believe that my calling is to be the leader of the free world. It's a really, really, really broad group of people. So I think there is a universe of non-Joe Rogan fans who think that it's basically just... Alex Jones, Milo Yiannopoulos, and the various right-wing parade of crazies. And it's just not that at all. It's not. And in some ways, that makes it even trickier and more frustrating to deal with Joe Rogan because you can't just write him off as a right-wing podcast. It's just not even close to true. And what strikes me when I listen to his show is how much of it is like a real conversation. Like over those three or four hours, it ebbs and flows. There's bits where they're just making small talk. And then there are the more interesting parts where you really lean forward. It really is like sitting beside someone at a bar and just listening in as they're chatting. Yeah. And I think even that has a kind of appeal to it because you do just feel like you're sitting in the room with him. It's company, just people hanging out, usually dudes. The list of women that he's had on his show is considerably shorter than the list of men. But there is just sort of a curious guys hanging with curious guys. Let's talk about some of those curious guys. I think it's hard to describe a typical Joe Rogan guest. He's had on everyone from Bernie Sanders. Every day people say, oh, we're talking about rich. You don't know what rich is. To Alex Jones, to Tony Hawk. We're not trying yeah. to build training grounds for Olympians, we're just trying to build a place for them to feel like they belong and feel like their community actually cares about them. Tulsi Gabbard, Malcolm Gladwell, Miley Cyrus. I send faxes back and forth to Dolly Parton because that's how she communicates. Oh, shit. Ed Norton to Edward Snowden. But when you've got YouTube going, oh, you like Nazi A? How about Nazi B? How about Nazi C, right? What would you say is the criteria for getting invited on the show? I think if I had to find commonalities, Usually someone who provokes Joe Rogan's curiosity and looks at the world a little bit differently. Now, three-hour conversations with intelligent people, that sounds like a good thing. But it's the fact that he doesn't discriminate. It's too open. And there's a handful of people that Joe Rogan has had on his program that I think most of us would agree have forfeited their right to be a part of the public discourse. Alex Jones being one of them. These people should not have microphones in front of them. They should not be given audiences. And Rogan, because of his sort of free speech absolutism, and because he takes joy in exploring weird ideas, just won't cut certain people off. And so when you don't take the responsibility with that, you can do some real, real damage. Devin, he definitely comes across as, you know, willing to talk to anybody, someone who doesn't discriminate. But you talked about the fact that, for example, the list of women he's had on is far shorter than the list of men. 
doesn't that suggest that consciously or unconsciously he is curating here? I mean, he is discriminating between some groups or another. He's choosing the kinds of people he'd like to have a conversation with. And often they tend to be men. Yeah. You know, this is one thing about Joe Rogan is that he acts like he's not making choices. He will curate his guests by saying, I'm just seeing who's interesting out there. But the fact of the matter is you reveal yourself in the types of guests that you keep choosing. Patterns emerge, which is why you can't just fix it by plucking a progressive and putting them on the show for three hours and saying everything's fixed. And with Joe, he much prefers to talk to men and he doesn't look as hard for expertise from women. And whenever I would point out the whiteness of the guest list, invariably, the Twitter mentions would point out that he had Cornell West on. It's like they all gravitated toward the one same name. Like some of my best interviews are with Cornell West. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. You know, if you just look at the list, it's hard to ignore. Devin, this podcast, Today in Focus, is a Guardian program. And so we go into our interviews in a certain way. Like if we were to get Elon Musk on the show, I probably wouldn't offer him a joint. But of course, that's what happened when he went on Joe Rogan's show. So is that a joint? It's um, marijuana inside of uh, tobacco. Okay. How would you describe the Rogan style of interviewing? How does he do it? Well, I mean, offering your subject a joint. Or a glass of whiskey, which is more common, or a cigar, if that's maybe the pleasure, is really part of the ethos. You're hanging out. You're going to have a good time here. And also, if I offer you a joint and you smoke it, I'm not going to hit you with a bunch of gotcha questions afterwards, right? Because under the circumstance that you describe, Elon would never accept the joint because he'd think that you were using it as an opportunity to loosen him up and get a bunch of stuff out of him. He'd never do it, right? And Joe Rogan's conversation is completely different than that. And frankly, look, we have to acknowledge that that's very appealing. One of the things that I like so much about that Elon Musk interview and that I like about even interviews with sort of more familiar people like Bernie Sanders is the way he interviews them. You just catch them being more human and more natural. You know, the things, there need to be things that make you look forward to Waking up in the morning, you wake up in the morning, you look forward to the day, look forward to the future. I felt like I knew them better and I had a better sense of their general vibe and demeanor because it is very intimate and it's very casual. You know, the Q&A thing that even that we're doing right now is kind of an unnatural human conversation, right? People don't ordinarily interact in this way, especially interview subjects. And so... On some level, you're getting a different version of them. You're getting a version of them that even they're not that used to. You sound very natural to me for what it's worth, uh, Devin. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> if we were to have Elon Musk on the show, I'd probably see it as an opportunity to ask him, like, why are you so focused on going to Mars when the problems of Earth seem so much more pressing? Mm -hmm. Or why did you tweet earlier this week in support of these Canadian truckers who don't want to get vaccinated. But you're saying we shouldn't even expect that from Joe Rogan, that that isn't his job to be holding these people to account. Look, I wish he would. I wish he'd see the value of asking tougher and trickier questions, but I don't expect him to. He's not going into it with the same criteria for success as I go into an interview as a journalist. 
And I can see the upside of that as entertainment, but I can also see in some cases a downside. And I'm thinking about the episode where he had Alex Jones on, someone who repeatedly insisted the Sandy Hook shootings yes. were a hoax. Now, yes. that Joe Rogan style here might be listened to by tens of millions of people, but don't you think the risk is that he ends up allowing some very questionable and possibly dangerous information to be broadcast without any significant pushback. Absolutely. That is definitely the risk here. Rogan, in the case of Alex Jones specifically, is that Rogan has fun with conspiracy theories. He finds them entertaining. He knows their conspiracies and accepts the very remote plausibility of them, but has sport with them. What he fails to do is recognize that a line needs to be drawn with someone like Alex Jones, who takes this stuff extraordinarily seriously, has no scruples about it and no ethics about it, and isn't coming to it from the same sporting, jovial way. And Alex Jones is a different kind of danger than the pseudoscientists that he has on. There, the danger is a different kind of weakness with Joe, which is He's very bad at separating good information from bad information. And that's the moment when he tries to act as a public service informing people when he sort of steps into a pseudo journalistic role, but doesn't have either the skill or really the motivation to push as hard as he needs to push to be careful with this stuff. Then it gets really, really dangerous. And Devin, he's got hundreds of millions of listeners, so there must be a really wide range of people listening in. But do you think there's like a stereotypical Joe Rogan listener? It's a white guy, the monster energy drink guys, the Fast and the Furious community, people who like (laughs) UFC, someone who falls on the continuum of Bernie bro on the left to alt-right on the right. It's sort of a male aggro continuum that actually cuts across political stripes because Joe himself is very progressive on a lot of topics, universal health care, legalized marijuana. So you actually get a spectrum of political leanings with the unity that there's a bit of alienation and frustration with mainstream society. Joe Rogan is sort of a peek into the problem of angry white men in America. And why are these young men drawn to Rogan over more traditional media? What makes them so loyal to him? These guys tend to get treated with condescension in the elite quarters of culture, especially in the media. And he doesn't treat them that way. He doesn't talk down to them. He's not making them feel like outsiders. He's one of them. And that's very powerful. His optimism, his self-improvement is a positive antidote to a lot of those negative feelings. One idea that he regularly gives voice to and that the people he interviews give voice to is this idea that to be a white man in 2022 is so difficult, everyone's against him. And invariably, he's talking about this with another very rich, very successful white guy. And I'm thinking of interviews with Jordan Peterson, for example. Yeah. One thing you can mock relentlessly is white people, specifically white males. It's one of the- Well, they are pretty funny, you know? Oh, sure. We're ridiculous. But there's a funny pejorative that people will say about 
like a group of folks, they're primarily white males. Like that is that's a pejorative. Like that's like it's you, my audience. That's yeah, what everyone that's, says. Yeah. Oh, you're talking to those angry young white males. But isn't that funny? Where do those conversations fit into the Rogan worldview? You know, everybody has things that get them excited, and then everybody has bones they want to pick. And to me, if you want to hear what makes Joe Rogan angry, go listen to his comedy. Who are those subjects? Feeling emasculated by society. A woman with a fake ass makes 50 times more than the commander-in-chief of the greatest army the world has ever known. Society being too delicate. You fucking dealt with it like a man. Like a man who shovels snow. Women. Like, no, we're going to use a midwife and we're going to have it in my bathtub. Not being able to say what you want. All of the tenets of alt-rightness turned into humor. And they tend to dovetail with the subjects that he talks about with characters like Jordan Peterson. But he's managed to take, I guess, that feeling of being a bit repressed, not being able to say what he wants, and turn that into a successful comedy career. But also, I mean, literally one of the biggest platforms in the world. How does he square that? How does he square the idea that he and white men are really put upon with the fact that he's extremely rich, extremely popular, and has this enormous platform? Well, let's put ourselves in his shoes this week. I bet Joe Rogan feels pretty attacked and put upon and victimized this week, even though he's being paid $100 million by Spotify. I'm sure that this is going to fuel his persecution complex. But more importantly, it is definitely going to feed the persecution complex in the eyes of his audience. If there's one thing the left hates more than anything else, it's anyone who gives a platform to people they don't like. This is the great way in our era that you, uh, you just shut up anything yeah. that is what we used to call asking questions. Mm-hmm. You say, oh, oh, it's misinformation. You can see the Joe Rogan army circling the wagons, anticipating him getting canceled. They are going to see this as the latest battle in the war. One of the other things that Rogan cops a lot of criticism for is that he has a lot of guests on the show that might be categorized as anti-trans, you know, for their belief in the acceptance of transgenderism as a mark of some kind of social contagion. Like, I remember he was really impressed with Douglas Murray's idea that the fact that transgender people were more accepted in society was a mark of some kind of civilization in decline, which is not just completely ahistorical, but it's also really mean and cruel. Why do you think Joe Rogan is unable to see that, unable to push back on a remark like that? Something about transgender brings out something really ugly in comedians. You know, Joe Rogan to Dave Chappelle, using that as a freedom of speech thing, fundamentally, it's a failure of empathy a failure of humanity. And that is one of Joe Rogan's big problems is just who he chooses to empathize with because he is not someone who lacks empathy. In fact, I think one of his gifts as an interviewer is that he has a great amount of empathy. It's just sometimes it fails and he chooses the wrong person to empathize with. Like for some reason, he's empathizing with Alex Jones's inability to get out his message rather than with the people who have been hurt by Alex Jones. It sounds like we're being really critical of Joe Rogan here, but like I said, I mean, I'm a listener, and I think in some ways his success raises really difficult questions for the mainstream media, Yes, which maybe explains why he was ignored for so long and mocked and is now seen with hostility in some quarters. What do you think 
his extraordinary appeal tells us, as in the mainstream media, about what we're missing? Yeah, it means we're missing something huge. I mean, it means we're not paying attention to a huge swath of men, what they're interested in, what they're thinking about. You know, one of the reasons why I wrote that story for The Atlantic is it seemed to me that the contempt toward Joe Rogan from the media was so total that they weren't even bothering to take a close look at something that was massive, which just struck me as unjournalistic to begin with. How can you just write off something like that? And I think the fact that something like that was written off for so long explains a lot about where we've been these last few years. Coming up, Joe Rogan retreats in the face of a vaccine controversy. But will he change the style that's made him such a star? Devin, the media may have missed or looked away from Joe Rogan as his star was rising, but one company that definitely didn't was Spotify, which last year announced just a huge deal with Joe Rogan. Tell me about it. Joe Rogan has been stubbornly independent for a very long time, and he was making a lot, a lot of money on his podcast. He picked all the advertisers. No one could tell him anything. And so it was considered something of a surprise when he signed up with Spotify. And of course, $100 million will do that to a person. And so when he did that, when he signed that deal with Spotify, was there some agreement that they wouldn't be able to meddle with his interviews, with the kinds of people he has on? I mean, I saw, for example, that some of his most controversial episodes, like the one with the provocateur Milo Yiannopoulos, that didn't make it onto Spotify. I mean, there was some censorship exercised there by Joe Rogan's new bosses. Yes, in reverse. But going forward, he's free and clear. And the agreement is that they're not going to do anything. And I think if this situation isn't going to force Spotify's hands, it's hard to imagine what would. And this situation, of course, is the fact that Rogan voiced and gave a massive platform to some views that blatantly contradict public health advice. Spotify has chosen to stick with Joe Rogan, but how has Rogan himself responded? This week, he apologized for getting some stuff wrong and promised in vague terms to do better on his show. One of the things that Spotify wants to do that I agree with is that at the beginning of these controversial podcasts, like specifically ones about COVID, is to put a disclaimer and say that you should speak with your physician and that these people and the opinions that they express are contrary to the opinions of the consensus of experts. But that being said, he's in some form of retreat. Devin, that seems really significant to me because what he said was that he wants to be more responsible and he's going to have on a wider range of guests. And you said earlier that his defense in the past has been, look, I'm a comedian and I'm just giving people a platform to speak and that he isn't necessarily responsible for what they say. And that reminds me of the things that other I guess, creatures of the internet, like Facebook and Twitter used to say, that they were just platforms, not publishers, Mm -hmm. and so they weren't responsible for the things people said. Now, they don't say that anymore. They've acknowledged that they bear some responsibility for what they allow to be broadcast, and they've spent the past five years struggling with the implications of that. 
And I wonder if Joe Rogan's statement this week is just as momentous that this last holdout of the old anarchic internet has now admitted that actually he is responsible for what people say on his show and that he has to now reckon for what that means for him and for the Joe Rogan experience. It is significant if he follows through. You know, it's one thing to say that you're going to be more scrutinizing. Some people just aren't that good at finding good guests and asking probing questions and calling BS at the right times. So he is going to have to do some work on it. But I also, you know, I take him at his word because prior to COVID, I would have described his audience and his content as slightly misunderstood. Now, I think that the audience and the content because of COVID probably lines up a little bit more accurately with the negative public perception. It's in his hands to shift that back. I don't think Joe Rogan wants to be lumped in with the crazy anti-vaxxer alt-right. I don't think that that's who he is. I don't think that that's who he wants to be. And I think he is a genuinely curious person who wants interesting and fresh ideas. And maybe he needs help finding them. And hopefully that's what this will do. Not just force him to be more scrutinizing in who he lets on, but take a different look at the world that you're presenting through your guests. And Devin, finally, it's pretty notable that up against Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Spotify chose their $100 million man, Joe Rogan. Yeah, and we'll see if that continues, right? We'll see if that list of artists, knowing what we know about how older music and catalog music is basically the backbone of the music industry now, if that grows and grows and grows, sure, this will become a real problem for Spotify. It's unclear, though, if what Joe Rogan did stopped that in its tracks, slowed it down, reversed it. We don't really know. Maybe these artists eventually will come out and say, okay, you know, we made our stand. We made our point. He retreated. He did what we wanted. We're back in business with Spotify. And frankly, maybe that's how this should work. People take their stands. Companies learn. Joe Rogan learns. We all get better and we move on. Yeah, but as of this moment on Spotify, you can listen to Joe Rogan, but not Neil Young. Yes, Spotify has made its choice. Devin Gordon, thanks very much for speaking to us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That was Devin Gordon, a writer based in Boston. You can read his excellent profile of Joe Rogan at The Atlantic's website and our coverage of this latest Rogan controversy at theguardian.com. Before we go, I want to mention a brand new podcast from The Guardian called Weekend. It launches this Saturday and it'll showcase the best Guardian interviews, features and opinion columns from the week, read by some great narrators. Listen from this Saturday on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Courtney Youssef. Sound design by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Mythley Rao and Phil Maynard. Back Monday. This is The Guardian.